Have you ever thought and wondered why the church? Why have a church? Why go to church? Why be a church? Why did God create the church? Why didn't God create something else? Or have his people do something else? Uh, perhaps God could have, e- could have equally organized his people into an organization for which its primary purpose was to help the less fortunate in the world. Perhaps God could have designed his people to pursue a relationship with him as as individuals, gaining knowledge through our own personal devotional times, our personal prayer lives, downloading podcasts, watching TV shows about him, having our own little Jesus time at, at home with our families. Perhaps God could have saved us, left us in our own individual families where the primary worship is done in the home individually rather than corporately. I'm sure there's many ways that we could think about why, many different paths we could take to think about that question. But why the church? Why this emphasis on the church? Why all this talk about the local church? You've been with us long. Pastor, why do you talk about the church so much? Why so much church words? Why all this language about church? I mean, God saved us as individuals. We have a personal relationship with Jesus. Or so we're told. It's all about the individual and personal preferences. I I mean, we wouldn't have this kind of church and that kind of church. Church for the old. Church for the young. A church for the rich and the church for the poor. A church for the millennial. The Gen Xer. The baby boomer. And whoever else you might be today. What does God's word have to say about the church? Well, frankly, if you've ever read the Bible and you read much of the New Testament, you can see an enormous emphasis on the local gathering of God's people. Why the church? Why did we gather this morning on the Lord's day? Why did we read scripture? Why did we sing songs? Why did we pray? Why are we listening to a sermon? Why do we call each other brothers and sisters? Well, I think all of those questions are answered very clearly in the book of Ephesians. This letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, where he articulates gloriously the centrality of the local church in our lives as God's people. And so to think more about that this morning, we're going to consider Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And so if you haven't opened your Bible, I invite you to do that and turn to Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. 
We'll think about the context in just a moment. First, I'm going to read. Paul writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. If we could summarize this letter in just one word, it would be unity. Paul began the letter by laying out God's eternal plan of salvation in Christ Jesus. He revealed to us this massive blessing that we receive from God in Christ Jesus. God's rich blessings in Christ naturally leads to a question by the Gentile readers. The Ephesian church was made up of primarily non-Jewish people. And so as they begin to read about a God who had an eternal purpose, who was working in the past, it begged the question for them, are Gentiles on equal footing with Jews in God's plan? Or are Gentiles subservient to God's plan? Are they somehow relegated to second class citizens? Are Gentiles included in God's purposes of salvation through Christ? Are are we in on this wonderfully mysterious and glorious plan? Well, as we've seen, Paul answer these questions in chapters 2 and 3 with an emphatic yes. All people from every tribe and tongue and nation are in on this. The gospel is not for one people, but for all people. All generations, all backgrounds. And then in chapter 3, begins to turn and to shift from sort of thinking about individual relationships, right? Because naturally, as individuals, regardless if you live in a postmodern world that emphasizes individuality at the expense of unity... In a culture that elevates and highlights our individual choices expressed in, I want to live life the way I want to live it, regardless of what someone tells me. In the midst of even that cultural context like our own, Paul speaks into it and he says, listen, God hasn't saved you as individuals, but as a body. He's saved you and brought you and united you for a shared life together. In other words, God hasn't called you to be individual people, but family members of a body. And so the local church is meant to shape our new relationship with Jesus Christ. You cannot follow Jesus rightly without the local church. The local church is Jesus's way of following him. 
It's the expression of what he's done internally in us, reconciling him and us individually, but also corporately. And so Paul's point here could be summarized in this way. God's eternal purpose was to display his wisdom and power to all creation through the local church. It's through the church, by means of this gathering this morning, that God's glory is displayed. Now, if you contrast that for just a moment with how God has displayed his glory through creation. In Psalm 19, for example, David exclaims that the heavens declare the glory of God. That his creative power is displayed. What Paul is saying here, as wonderful and as as grand and glorious as creation is, there's something even greater. And it's the church. Frankly, if you've had your ears open, many in our culture, many in our generation and in their prior generations, really diminish the importance of the local church. It was seen as something burdensome. I've got to go to church. Did you know what's there? It's a cesspool of broken people whose lives are all messed up and they got all kinds of problems and, and they'll suck you in and they'll, they'll bite you and they'll attack you and they'll gossip about you and they'll be mean to you. And, oh, and then they'll try to tell you how to actually live your life. It is not the place you want to go. The local church is just a place where they just want my money. If I go to church, they're going to ask me for money. Worse than that, they're going to ask me to do something. Frankly, friends, we see that God sees the church as a center point, a center place, an important part of what it means to follow him. And so God has revealed his wisdom through the gospel of Jesus Christ and puts the power of the cross on display through the body of Christ. Through this gathering, as we come together, Jesus is glorified. He's praised and honored. As he unites a deeply diverse people into one body, the church. And so, last week we considered, in verses 1 through 6, three aspects of the gospel. Three aspects of the Christian gospel. We reflected and rolled around. What Paul is doing here is he's taking the gospel and he's removing it out of the individual context. And what he's doing is he's saying, listen, the gospel isn't merely about you as it is about others. And I want to show you, he says, how the gospel of Jesus Christ has affected my life and the lives of people around me. And this is all sort of bookended around Paul's suffering. He began in verse 1 of chapter 3 and ends in verse 13, sort of midway through the chapter, with his imprisonment. Paul is in prison for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the, the glory of the gospel. And so what Paul does here is he wants us to think about gospel ministry. He wants to think about how the local church impacts our lives individually and corporately together. 
in really considering three facts or three aspects of the gospel. First, we'll see in verse 8 that the that gospel ministry humbles. That if you and I rightly understand the gospel at the front door of the church, I don't mean the literal front door, though you could use it literally if you needed to, but figuratively, the front door of the church, how you get into the church. That is not this building, right? So let's clarify everything real quick. This is a building. The people are the church, right? You all remember that from Sunday school, right? You know, the people inside and all that, Um, right? The body of Christ is made up of people, not physical, material things. It's people. United, blood-bought people. And so the front door of that Humbles us, Paul says. Gospel ministry humbles. And so we sort of are low coming in so as we don't wreck the place when we get in. So we're going to think a little bit about how gospel ministry, how the gospel humbles us. Secondly, we'll see that gospel proclamation is gloriously global. In other words, as we've been thinking about, we want to just go there again and think more deeply how the gospel is for all people. Because of our sin nature, and regardless of how we look in the mirror and tell ourselves we're not prejudiced against any one particular people, you're lying to yourself when you say that. And you do not understand the depravity of your own sinful heart. And so I want to caution us this morning from coming to these sort of really broad brush statements like, I don't look at, you know, external things when I judge people. Wrong. You're a sinner, just like me. We're broken people. And so we want to understand that we have this tendency to just hang out with people that look like us and smell like us and think like us. But the gospel calls us to be globally goers, to go to the ends of the earth. And then finally, we'll consider how gospel unity in the local church puts God's wisdom on display. How God's wisdom is displayed when we gather here every Lord's Day and when we scatter into the lives of one another throughout the week as we lovingly serve and care and minister to one another, God is glorified. So first, notice here in verse 8 that gospel ministry humbles. Excuse me, verse 7 and 8. Paul writes, of this gospel, I was admitted to minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. What Paul means there is I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. I didn't sign up. I was drafted. I was drafted by God. He called me out of darkness into light, literally, right? Out of darkness into light. Paul's blinded by the glory of God and then the lights come on and he sees his, his wonder and power and believes in him. Paul says that it, it, is not, it is by grace that he has been called into gospel ministry. He's been called by God and appointed as an apostle. Notice here he says that he is the very least of all the saints. Paul here is demonstrating the kind of gospel uh, humility Uh, that one who rightly understands the gospel leads to. Now, Paul was an apostle. Just a quick reminder, he was an apostle, which meant that he was sent by God. He was somebody who was sent out on a mission with authority. He was one that was an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ. In other words, an apostle had to have seen the resurrected Christ. 
And of course, on the road to Damascus, Jesus revealed himself to Paul and he saw the resurrected Christ. And, and these apostles were given unique authority to teach the early church the word of God. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, under the power of the Holy Spirit, they were to teach with authority. That means that they taught what Jesus wanted them to teach. There was a movement just a a number of really months, maybe years. uh, It's a new movement. It's not a new. It it is kind of built on some old bad theology of the red letter Christian. Uh, There's a movement here in America called uh, the red letter Christians. In fact, one of the worst things that have ever happened to Christians was that was publishers making the text of Jesus's words red lettered. Before you start throwing things at me, here's what I mean. Jesus said all the letters, black and red, okay? And when we emphasize red letters over black letters, we, we undermine the sufficiency and authority of the Word of God. What we're reading here this morning here in Ephesians, though it was written by a person, a man, it was written under the authority of Jesus himself by the Holy Spirit, as we heard our sister read in, from 1 Peter, uh, that, that, that the apostles taught what Jesus wanted them to teach. But even though Paul had this tremendous responsibility, notice how he responds to it. He doesn't come into the room with his chest held high, with his fist out, with his foot stomping the ground and saying, you're going to do this. No, no, he says, I'm the very least of all the saints not of all the apostles of all the saints of everyone that has ever been set apart by god for for salvation he says that i stand at the inner at the end now now paul here doesn't have a false humility this isn't some sort of humble brag by paul you know you know yeah i'm the least you know i'm not that great you know i'm just a, a bumbling fool you know no that's that's not it at all What Paul here is doing is he is acknowledging the work of God's grace in his life. Paul was not worthy of salvation. Paul was a violent opponent to the cross of Christ. He was what we would call today a terrorist. As as all of the implications that that word has in it in our culture today is what and who Paul was. He terrorized the church. Can you imagine going to that potluck on Sunday morning and having to sit across the table with Paul, knowing that like two weeks ago he locked up all your friends who are still in jail because of him? God doesn't, get this, in the gospel, God doesn't destroy the competition. He changes them and uses them to serve his glorious purpose. He lavished his grace upon Paul, and he was in awe of it. Paul uses similar language elsewhere in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For I am the least of all the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by grace, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not yet without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. 
Paul didn't forget his past. He didn't go to some shrink and try to uh, ignore the past. But rather, Paul dealt with the past with the grace of God that was given to him in Christ. As he reminds Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Brothers and sisters, I bring out and I draw out this point because I think what we need in the local church today is a good dose of humility. When's the last time you talked like this? When's the last time you heard someone talk like this? No, so often we gather and talk about ourselves. We talk about how good we are, how great we are, how successful we are. I mean, you get a group of pastors together and you just want to vomit all over the place. Seriously. The first question out of most pastors' mouths to other pastors, how many people do you have? How much money do you have? Blah, blah, blah. Seriously. And these are... People that believe the Bible. I'm not, we're not talking about theological liberals here. We're talking about Bible-believing conservatives, right? The liberals aren't counting anybody. They don't have anybody, right? So, so, no, really, seriously, what does that reflect? It reflects a prideful heart. Brothers and sisters, we are unworthy of God's grace. And until we recognize we don't deserve to be in the church, we won't understand what the church is. Paul reminds us of our own unworthiness. And brothers and sisters, do you grasp the depth of your sin this morning? Do you grasp the the depth of your unworthiness? You don't deserve any of this. I don't deserve any of this. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Now we'll sing that. But do we believe that? Ephesians 2 reminds us that salvation is by grace alone and not a result of works. You wonder why Ephesians 2 comes before Ephesians 3. Because you can't truly grasp what's going on in the body of Christ until you truly grasp the depth of your sin and the greatness of God's love for you in Christ. Have you ever noticed that when someone is really excited about something, they just can't shut up about it? They just talk about it all the time. It's like, okay, we get it. You're really excited about that. We get it. You talk about it all the time. We get it. Well, friends, if you read Paul in the scriptures, you're going to find something he can't get over. And that's the gospel. He can't get beyond the gospel. He can't get beyond God's grace in Christ. He can't get beyond it at all. And neither can we. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing of God's grace than when we first begun. For trillions of years, trillions of years, We will be doing nothing but passing our days dwelling on the grace of God in Christ. As we ponder the wonder of God's grace in Christ, let us not shut our mouths, but humbly see and count it a privilege to be a part of Christ. Brothers and sisters, humility is essential and central 
to the health and growth of the local church. We cannot grow maturity-wise without humility. Brothers and sisters, we must see pride for what it is. It is venomous poison to corrode the goodness of God's grace in the life of God's people. Brother, how are you doing fighting pride in your life? It's okay that you're struggling in sin. It's okay that you're fighting temptation. It's okay you're not the best dad or the best husband or the best worker. Brother, how are you doing confessing your sin to one another? The moment we begin to speak like we have our sin, we are a fool. Sin's got us. We've never been, a, been able to get a hold of it. Sister, how have you been striving hard to fight temptation in your life? Are you one tempted to gossip? Do you see gossip as a form of pride? It is. The reason why you're so desirous to speak about others is because in our wicked hearts, motivated by pride, We want to point about others' brokenness so that nobody takes the time to look at our own. Those that are so obsessed with others and pointing out others' faults are the ones that are tempted not to look at their own prideful hearts. Let us humble ourselves as God's people and see that gospel ministry humbles Brothers and sisters, the church humbles. Well, let's secondly, quickly, verses 8 through 9, as he continues, gospel proclamation is gloriously global. Now, I'm going to spend a ton of time with this point because we've really pressed hard on it the last few weeks. And if you haven't been paying attention, get the cliff notes now. Here it is. Paul, as we've already said, has been commissioned by God. Notice what he says. That I, though I'm the least of all the saints, this grace was given to me, Notice here, purpose statement, to preach, to purpose, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul was drafted into ministry not to do what Paul wanted to do, right? Paul wasn't like, you know, hey, can I do youth ministry? Can I work in children's ministry? What kind of ministry do you want me to do? I want you to go to the nations, Paul. The word Gentile literally means nations, ta ethne, the the ethnics, uh, the the non-Jews. Paul, you are to go to the non-Jews. You are to go to those and preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. In other words, simply put, Paul, you're going to go and share the gospel message with those who have never heard it. The gospel of Jesus Christ is unsearchable, Paul says. It's unknowable. It's unfindable. If, if we were to go on a journey and try to gather it up, we would be lacking. Why? Because God's grace is too great to gather. Paul was to take the message to bring to light. The word there means revelation. To bring to light. To bring revelation, knowledge, of their sin, knowledge of God's grace through Christ. He was to preach it to everyone. 
Notice here that Paul says he was to preach without distinction. He wasn't just to go to his favorite Gentiles. He was to go to every Gentile. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to all people. Now, this is quite new. As we studied earlier in weeks past, in chapters 2 and verses 11 through 12, Paul revealed that, that these Gentiles were once separated, alienated from Christ. They, they didn't have any hope. God had called a particular people, the, the Israelite people, and said, I'm going to love you and I'm going to judge the nations around you. God had redeemed a people for himself and it was the descendants of Abram that were being blessed. But now, in something so mysterious and wondrous, God says, no, actually, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the gospel to everyone. This message of reconciliation is for all people to give glory of God to everyone. The Jews needed to hear this message and the Gentiles. There wasn't some special message that that were to the Jews and Paul was giving a different message to the Gentiles. Rather, it's the same message. And so Paul says that he has been called. Notice here again in verse 9, as we've emphasized throughout, he calls it a mystery. That he's to reveal to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This is a mystery, he says. And he says, who's, who's hid it? God hid the mystery so that no one could figure it out. No one could find it. No one could... You know, stumble upon it. The point here is that God sovereignly revealed the mystery of the cross. In verse 6, he tells us what this mystery was, or is. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. In short, the mystery was that, that the Jews and Gentiles were one. It's not something that they could Google to figure it out. It's not something that the most brilliant minds in the world could uncover. Uh, Not Dawkins or Newton or Watts. None of the brightest minds in all the world would be able to figure out the gospel of Jesus Christ. We could gather some of the brightest minds in all the world, put them in a think tank, and they would not be able to come up with this. It was, again, God's glorious plan to include the nations in his reconciliation of man to himself. In a singular act in the cross, God broke down centuries of racial divide, animosity for which we only experience a little. In fact, God broke down the divide that existed between man God. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only is God reconciling men and women to one another, but he's reconciling them to him, to himself. God's amazing love, he's inviting you through the gospel by repenting of your sins and trusting in the the finished work of Christ, dying the death you deserved and raised to new life by believing in the gospel that you need to be saved. You too can have a relationship with him. And frankly, this is where the world departs from us. The world believes that everything can be figured out through knowledge. 
that with the right education, everything can be attained. That education is power. And I know we have some educators in this room, and I know that you didn't buy into that, but heard that often. That education is power. Well, since the Enlightenment, that's what Western civilization has taught. That you can reason your way to all things. But God here destroys the pride of man by revealing our need of him. In other words, we can't figure it out. Apart from God revealing this secret, none of us would have figured it out. None of us would have came to him. We would be totally unable to know God's grace. Brothers and sisters, I hope that as we think about this mystery of the gospel, that it causes us to to really generally have awe and wonder of it. To see it as something wonderful and glorious and, and humbling. Well, finally, we see here in the, in the latter verses, look here in verse 10. Paul has a purpose statement here, result purpose, so that, why was Paul sent on a mission to take the gospel to the Gentiles? Well, what would result from that? What was kind of the overarching purpose of that? Notice here, verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized or revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What was God's eternal purpose? That the church would be the place where he would display his glory among the nations. God displays his glory in the church. That's truth that's being revealed to us this morning. It seems in God's economy, the church is pretty important. Now we understand why there's so much division in the church. Now we understand why there's so much disagreement among like-minded Christians. Now we understand why Christians struggle to get along because... If the church is where God's glory is displayed, I'm not a rocket scientist, but it would stand to reason that that's probably where the enemy is going to focus the most. He's not going to waste his time doing all these other little piddly things. He's going to go right after the head. Right after the bride of Christ. Dr. Schreiner in his commentary says this, The church enshrines God's plan for history revealing to all creation the wisdom and depth of God's plan. The church is the locus of God's glory, the theater in which he displays his grace in love. Brothers and sisters, the church will reflect for eternities God's wisdom and the depth of his riches in Christ. This means that the church is not some appendix in our lives, some unimportant organ that you know we'll keep around if we need to but sometimes it needs to be removed but as christians our lives should regularly and more intentionally be centered around the local gathering of god's people now i'm going to get practical how 
does the church display God's glory? Well, by displaying the effects of the gospel. In other words, the unity of the gospel in community is displayed when we reflect a truly diverse gospel. Not merely as we exist and as we work, but rather through our life together in a gospel community. You see the word community there, borrowed from the the feasts that we celebrate together in communion. The local church is to be a community. And we see something even in the midst of that word. What's at the center of community but unity? By sacrificing ourselves, by laying aside our desires and our wants in the body of Christ and uniting each other into under one faith and one baptism and one Lord, right? All of that displays God's glory. The effects of the gospel. Sinners who were once living lives and rebelling against God turn from their sins, trust in Christ, are baptized into the local church and into church membership, all in a display of God's glory. Notice here the realm in which God's glory is displayed. Verse 10 again, notice that it is displayed the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God displays his multifaceted wisdom before demonic rulers and authorities by triumphing over them through racial reconciliation, by triumphing over racism and alienation, and by uniting rather a bitterly divided people. That's what he does. I mean, I fear that you and I are so familiar with gathering together on the Lord's Day with other Christians that we kind of miss the wonder of the whole thing. We miss how really quite amazing it is that you even know me and that I even know you. I mean, if it wasn't for the gospel of Jesus Christ, if it wasn't for the fact that he he saved me, he called me, into gospel ministry, I would have never met you. And you would have never met the people that you're sitting around this morning. There's no reason for it. Oh, yes, we might have passed brushed shoulders on an airplane or in a, in a theme park somewhere or in a restaurant or in a grocery store. There's frankly no reason why we'd be sitting together, singing songs together, and praying together if it hadn't been for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see that in the local church there is immense diversity. Now what do we have in mind? I want to be very clear that it's multi-level, multi-faceted. You know, we tend to think only in certain categories... Race tends to be the one category, and that's right. I think it's good. We want to think about racial reconciliation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, not through some man-made means. In our cultural climate and culture, that might mean reconciliation between African Americans and Caucasians. But frankly, in our cultural context, I think it's deeper than that. Because we see the sort of relegation of even those from South America... Uh, from Central America, uh, those that speak Spanish and not speak English. And frankly, I'm about to smack the next Christian who says to me, why don't people who speak Spanish learn English? 
Well, I don't know. Why don't you learn Spanish so you can take the gospel down there to those people that speak Spanish? Friends, we say things and we don't notice how often it is teased with so much division and strife and animosity towards certain people groups. We just don't even recognize it. But it's more than just racial unity, and we want to strive for that. I think it's economic. Rich and poor sitting together. Oh, said by him, he smells. Education. Those who have PhDs and those that barely pass the fifth grade. Influence. Those who are shakers and movers in our society. And those that sweep floors and clean toilets. Cultural. Brothers and sisters, if you just look in this room, there is enough diverse culture here. Right? There is enough diverse culture here that is very different than this world. And frankly, one of, the, one of the greatest ways that culture shows up, even though we're all sort of part of a broader culture here in, in Western civilization and then deeper into America and then we have our subcultures. I mean, let's be frank. Where do we see culture show up but in how we do Christmas? How we're going to do Mother's Day? Everybody's different. Everybody does things differently. We have our own ways of doing things, but yet we set all of that aside and are united together. Single and married. Young and old. So like here at Catonsville Baptist Church, one of the ways we express the unity of the gospel is not by doing a traditional service and a contemporary service. In fact, that undermines exactly what Paul is preaching here in Ephesians 3. We don't have a church for the old and a church for the young. We don't have that. Now we have a church for all. For the retired and for the widow, for the single mom and the single dad, for the divorced, for those who come from different walks of life and different stains and scars, all of them are united together and given equal authority and power in Christ. It's not those with the ability to teach or those with eloquent wisdom that are somehow elevated to greater positions in the church, but it's all. And what we need to fight together and strive together is the unity of the church and the bond of peace. And it begins by humbling ourselves. It begins by laying aside our personal preferences and laying aside what we want to see and rather see God's design for the church. Frankly, there's nothing that we can do that creates unity beyond sharing the gospel. But there are things that do hinder the growth of the unity in the local church. And it is pride and selfishness and lack of love and lack of hospitality. What can we do? We can sacrifice our comforts. We can deal with it being a little bit hotter in here so our senior adults aren't freezing to death. Or we can deal with it being a little colder or we, we can deal with a new song that I don't know because, the, you know, the younger people like it. Or, or we can deal with singing, you know, old hymns because our senior adults really love those and it encourages them. We can sacrifice our time and our efforts so that we can take people to doctor's visits and we can, you know, share meals with 
Um, people who live alone. We can sacrifice our personal preferences about um, decor because it's straight ugly in here and I can't stand it. We can sacrifice all of those things. Being honest. Brothers and sisters, the point simply is this. We, we, not me, not just you, but we together must work to preserve unity. This, me- this means that when someone wants to s- divide, no, we want to unite. We want to work towards unity. We want to work by lovingly sacrificing. Brothers and sisters, this is why we must put an emphasis on regenerate church membership. That's why we must put an emphasis on submitting to those in authority over you. Frankly, if you're not willing to submit to pastors, um, I don't know what you mean when you say you want to follow Jesus. If you're unwilling to submit to one another's love and exhortation and care, I again don't know what you mean when you say you want to follow Jesus. And I will drill in here even more frankly, and you can be mad at me all day and the rest of the week and maybe beyond. But I don't know what you mean when you say you want to follow Jesus, but your schedule seems that you can never, ever make it on the Lord's day. Is attendance on the Lord's day required for Christians? I don't know. I'm not going to make it a sin issue. But I'm definitely going to make it a foolish issue. The author of Hebrews kind of makes pretty clear. I mean, you take it and you meditate it on for yourself. But he says this, he says... Let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering, for he who promises is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of son, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the draw near. That doesn't mean that you get sick or you have responsibilities like work. But if it's a choice between gathering with your brothers and sisters to encourage them? You ever consider that maybe it's not about you being here in your presence, but the very fact that, that your presence would be an encouragement to a senior adult or a young person or whoever? Why the church? Because it displays God's eternal purposes, His wisdom and power to all creation. God's glory is displayed as he divides and unites, rather, a deep leg, diverse people into one body. So let us put it on display. Let the world see what the gospel can do. Let's be known for our diversity made, not by human hands, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I conclude with this quick quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. As he meditated on this passage here in Ephesians 3, in his sermon on the text, he says this, Your responsibility and mine is this. Are we manifesting this wisdom of God? It's through the church he does it. It is being seen in us. Are we reflectors in our little way of this bright shining of his eternal wisdom? Are you somewhere in the spectrum? Is it being flashed around you? 
God forbid, if we are failing in these things. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning as we've just opened your word to hear about the need for humility and diversity in our lives. And Father, as we move beyond this text in Ephesians in the weeks ahead, let us not forget that you have united us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would rid any hate that we might have towards a fellow brother or sister. Lord, I pray that you would work reconciliation among us. If, If there's any animosity or division, Lord, let us... Let us lay aside and humble ourselves and come and confess and and turn from our sins and trust in Christ. I I pray for unity among us. I pray for those new members that have recently joined our congregation in the last couple years. I, I pray that they would not try to just do church the way they've always done it, but Lay aside their preferences. I pray about I pray for our for our existing members, those who have been here for, for decades, who've seen pastors come and go, they've seen people come and go, and they've stayed steadfast because they love this church. I pray that as we see young and old, new and old, that we would be united together through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we'd love one another and commend the gospel for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.